Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Jimmy Hoover, and I cover the court for Law360 here in Washington. And joining me now from our New York studio is co-host and Law360 editor-at-large, Natalie Rodriguez. How's it going, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. So the Supreme Court is still on its February break, uh, but we have a special episode this week. Jimmy, you got to interview U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, and we're going to hear some segments from it. Uh, can you tell our listeners a, a little bit about what brought you to interview him uh, this this past week? Yeah, that's right. So on Tuesday, uh, Senator Whitehouse and I sat down for a little chat about the Supreme Court. Uh, Senator Whitehouse, you know, he's a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he's actually pretty well known among Supreme Court watchers as being, you know, very vocal about what he sees as the direction of this current court. Um, In particular, I wanted to talk to him about a a recent amicus brief that he filed in a case involving the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Yeah, as many of our listeners probably know, you know, it's a very high stakes case about whether the CFPB can have an independent director. Um, And Senator Whitehouse, along with two of his colleagues, have been urging the court to defend the structure of the agency. Um, But they've also, it was an interesting brief because they also took a larger aim at dark money in amicus briefs. Um, And we're going to get a little bit into the details of the brief and the case uh, later. Uh, But Jimmy, first, can you set up kind of where you started with the interview? Yeah, so before we talked about the CFPB case, I just wanted to ask him, you know, how he's become such an outspoken and frequent critic of the Supreme Court, perhaps more than any other member of Congress. So, Senator Whitehouse, welcome to the term. How are you today? I'm very well. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah, so before we get into uh, the amicus brief in the CFPB case, I just wanted to kind of ask you generally about the Supreme Court. You know, you're kind of one of the more outspoken critics of this current uh, Roberts Court. Um, so I just wanted to ask, you know, when you realized that this was a really important issue uh, for the country and that you thought that there was something kind of fundamentally wrong with the way that the Supreme Court's going right now? I think one of the big tipping points for me was the Citizens United decision. Um, I was not the world's greatest appellate lawyer, but I was an appellate lawyer, so I know how decisions are supposed to be written and I know how the analysis is supposed to work. Um, and Citizens United seemed so badly wrong in so many ways that it really began to ring alarms. Um, and then when you look behind Citizens United to some of the other real stinkers like Shelby County and, uh, Janus, um, and others, and then you look behind that and you see, oh my God, they've done this 80 times, 85 to four decisions in which it was the Roberts Five who were the five, in which there was a big Republican donor interest at stake and in which the big Republican donor interest won. Um, you know, once you start digging, it doesn't get to, <laughs> it doesn't look any better. Do you think there's a little bit of a gap in understanding about just, you know, what the Supreme Court does? It's, you know, these legal opinions that not, you know, your lay people read, but, you know, you obviously feel that it's a very important part of the government that, you know, maybe not a lot enough people pay attention to just how much they affect on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I think um, alarms should have been ringing on this a long time ago. Unfortunately, the people who would best know that something has gone wrong would be people who practice before the court and who see the um, what's happening right in front of them. Right. The problem, however, for people who practice before the court is that their number one goal is not to irritate the court. Right. Because that's how they make their living. Right. And so this really got 
pretty out of control before anybody started to blow the whistle mm -hmm. on it. Um, we shouldn't, I think I wrote my first really big piece quantifying the cases when they'd gotten to 72 such decisions. We should have seen this coming a lot earlier than that. Right. So I think that's a pretty good background for where Senator Whitehouse is coming from. Um, and I, I think it helps shed some light kind of onto where he's also coming from in the brief filed with the CFPB case, um, where he and the other senators took aim at dark money, you know, the influence of money from these big secretive groups on amicus briefs in the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, he has a problem with the fact that in the CFPB case in particular, you know, there have been, you know, over a dozen or so amicus briefs from outside organizations. These are the friend of the court briefs that kind of tell the court, you know, about their views, even though they're not parties of the case. And sometimes they can be very influential. And so, you know, his problem is that a lot of these, you know, conservative, respected uh, legal groups are actually funded by some of the same what he considers to be dark money uh, donors, um, things like the Koch Foundation or the Bradley Foundation. Um, and so he wants to kind of uh, puncture the illusion that there is this widespread agreement for some of these legal positions, in the case of the CFPB, that, you know, it's unconstitutional, and just kind of express to the court that, you know, a lot of this is coming from some of the same donors who have a vested interest in the case. So he wants, he's asking the Supreme Court to introduce these new disclosure requirements so that, you know, these various legal organizations that file these amicus briefs, that they have to say where their money's coming from. And so when we were talking, I, you know, I had to ask how effective he actually think that would be. Um, there's a chance that the Supreme Court is so beholden to these special interests that it wouldn't matter to them. But I think they're entitled to the benefit of the doubt, and at least they should have this information in front of them, and then they have the chance to know better. But for instance, if the court were to know that the same dark money funding group were behind a dozen different amicus briefs in a particular case, that might change their appreciation of the supposed outpouring of uh, sentiment in favor of a particular position. And we have actually seen that to be the case, that a right-wing foundation has funded a dozen or more of the so-called amici curiae, the friends of the court, in a particular case. And I think it's not only important for the court to know that, but it's also important for the public to know that, that there's a show being put on by these big money donors in which they can crank up a dozen separate organizations to act like they're a you know, bouquet of separate flowers when in fact they're all tentacles of the same beast. So Jimmy, there's 70 cases a year before the Supreme Court, but Senator Whitehouse singled out the CFPB case. Why is it so important? Yeah, so he sees this as part of a broader conservative attack on you know the ability of federal regulators to regulate. So the CFPB was obviously created in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. It's meant to you know, regulate uh, all the financial institutions in the country um, and prevent some of the things that led to the crash in the first place. And so in his eyes, getting rid of the independence of an agency like the CFPB and making them just another fireable uh, you know, executive official, that is definitely up, uh, is going to weaken the, the the agency's ability to do what it does, and so yeah, I asked him about you know this issue about the the new 
kind of trend at the Supreme Court of diluting down the power of some of these federal agencies as we've seen in recent cases. So turning to the actual case itself beyond the amicus issue, so this is, you know, we talked about it's, uh, it basically raises the question of the independence of these federal agencies. But, you know, you've, you've pointed out that it's part of a pattern of reexamining these precedents in the areas of administrative law. And that's just something that not a lot of people think about, but, you know, it's become kind of a priority of the Trump administration to rein in the power of these federal regulations. Why is that so important to, to pay attention to? Well, administrative law is about as tiresome <laughs> right. a subject as you can have until somebody else's sludge comes down your river, Right. until somebody's lies about a stock that they have sold you end up with you losing your shirt, until the things that regulation protects against go wrong with you. Um, so it's been... You know, it's not at the forefront of everybody's mind to defend the so-called administrative state, as the Republicans like to talk about it. However, if you are a big polluter, if you are someone who is engaged in a dangerous or uh, an, an activity that's vulnerable to fraud, then getting these pesky administrators off your back is a good thing. And so there's a very big discrepancy between the interest and power of those who want to disable the protections of administrative regulation and from those who enjoy the protections of administrative regulation. And I'm trying to bring that to people's attention, too. Right. And you see this case as part of that larger battle, you know, even though it involves something like independence, because obviously it's not, you know, getting rid of the CFPB entirely, but this one involves whether or not, you know, it, the director of the CFPB can be, you know, uh, removed for cause or at will by the, by the president. Yeah, I mean, the fundamental question here is, given this particular agency and the particular disaster that caused it to be created, it emerged out of a really bad political failure in which very powerful banks totally overbore the regulatory agencies, were allowed to get away with murder um, they even overbore the rating agencies, and they corrupted the entire regulatory process. And the mm -hmm. result was this massive blowout where suddenly people were being put out of their homes who had nothing to do with anything other than that suddenly their mortgage was no good any longer and they lost their job and they couldn't make the payments. And I mean, the whole thing was, was um, a real nightmare. And it was a nightmare founded in excessive control and excessive influence by an industry over its captive regulators. So Congress responded by trying to protect this agency, mm -hmm. which had particularly been sort of born in the furnace of corrupt influence, to be able to better defend itself from exactly that influence. And we'll see whether the court is willing to accept that argument in this case. CFPB is a little bit unique in that its natal moment was one in which proper regulation had failed because of industry influence and there was the highest possible level of interest, justified interest in Congress in trying to make sure that didn't happen again and you had real independence and an organization that could protect the regular person against these powerful, powerful forces of influence. 
Right. So getting away from the, the CELA law CFPB case, it's not the first uh, amicus brief that you've uh, filed this, this, <laughs> no. this year no, at the Supreme not. Court. So you know I was going to ask about this one. Uh, back in August, um, you authored a brief um, in the New York gun case, um, basically saying that the Supreme Court should moot this case. It's not a live controversy anymore. The you know the city has since rescinded the challenged ordinance, which was a, uh, a restriction against transporting firearms. But it got a lot of backlash because of this line at the end. I'll just read it really quickly. You said that the Supreme Court's not well, and then you said, "quote Perhaps the court can heal itself before the public demands uh, it be." And then you're quoting someone else: "Restructured in order to reduce the influence of politics." What'd you make of all that backlash to to that amicus brief? Was that a anticipated, or were you a little bit surprised by it? I was. Um, I, we've written a bunch of briefs. Um, and that was particularly uh, hotly received. But I've been at this long enough now that I recognize this behavior. And if you look at the response that it received, it's pretty much entirely out of the right-wing media universe. Mm -hmm. And my guess is that somebody, you know, pulled the switch and said, okay, we all have to be mad about this. And everybody went out and was mad about it for a while. Um, it was a planned reaction, I believe, that had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And then when it was over, it was over. Um, when, when I've had this experience before, it's very often a thing that isn't true, that is turned into the cause of the outrage. And that was also true You'd say it was mischaracterized. Case, it was totally mischaracterized. Yeah. It wasn't none of, a none of us who wrote, or anything like that. None of us who've written the brief have been supportive of changing the right. number of the Supreme Court. The language that I used was in quotes out of a poll that was taken mm -hmm. from the American public. When the American public is so concerned about the state of the Supreme Court that they su support a fundamental restructuring of the court in order to limit... Uh, improper influence there, that's a pretty strong signal. And rather than respond to that signal, these forces, which I think are very closely related to those who are capturing the court, wanted to set off all kinds of flares and alarms to try to back me off, to try to back off the other co-authors, and to try to create a little mini storm of public opinion that something we were doing was very, very, very wrong. And it's kind of comical that the forces who are trying to capture the court and by some uh, opinions have succeeded in capturing and controlling the court are running around um, fulminating about, oh my gosh, people are threatening the court. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> so speaking of uh the legitimacy surrounding the Supreme Court. I feel like it would be a missed opportunity if I didn't ask you, a, a sitting U.S. senator, so soon after the impeachment trial, how you would uh, grade uh, the chief justice's performance. Um, you know, it was a rather uh, minimal one, but do you have any strong feelings one way or the other? No, he didn't really have a role other than to sit there. Okay. Um, I think it would have been extremely surprising if he stepped out of that role back in the Clinton impeachment. Uh, chief Justice Rehnquist said... My job was to do nothing, and I think I did it very well. So there's some history there of impeachments going both political directions. So I don't have any uh, concerns about how he conducted himself. Did you agree with his take on the precedent question about the Chase trial that, you know, it came to, it was all, in the end, it was academic, right, whether he would yeah. be able to break that tie. But he said that, you know, under his reading, 
you know, him and his clerks had come to the conclusion that that those were isolated incidents and that that, that they were procedural rulings in nature and so forth. I think if we'd gotten to the point where we were actually having witnesses um, and treating the proceedings the way the founding fathers expected us to, which was as a trial, then there would have been rulings that would have to be made on which witnesses' testimony was relevant, material, protected by privilege, whatever. And he would then have been at the center of those rulings, and it would have put the um, Republicans in a bit of a pickle if they wanted to close off testimony that was clearly relevant or wanted to bring in smears that were clearly not relevant to have to override a vote of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. I think they would have done it. They would have regretted it. That's one of the reasons they didn't want to go there with the witnesses was that they didn't want to be in a situation where they might be crosswise with Chief Justice Roberts. So just to kind of wrap things up, uh, Chief Justice Roberts ultimately invited all the you know members of the Senate to pop across the street for oral arguments, you know, will that be an opportunity you'll be taking up maybe in the CFPB case when it's argued well, I've, next Well, I've session? been there for oral arguments before. I've argued there myself. Right. So uh, I know that. I hope that um, he's as receptive to reading our briefs as he is to inviting us to sit there and watch them. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Good to be with you. All right. Thank you, Senator. That was a great interview. Uh, Jimmy, I think it's always so interesting to hear what a senator thinks about the Supreme Court. Yeah, it was a, it was definitely a fun one. And uh, we'll continue to hear what the senator thinks as he you know files more amicus briefs and more Supreme Court cases. I think that's a wrap for us this week. Uh, we'll be back next week. Um, thanks again, Jimmy. Yeah, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.